Well, the stars blazed bright, showed brave men the way. Under guns by night is where they lay. With a land so old and harsh, much to be uncovered. These stories we will tell on Australia rediscovered. Come here about it all with Rico. On Australia Rediscovered. Alrighty, and welcome to episode four of Australia Rediscovered, the podcast. This week, we are going to be talking about one of the fair income absolute legends of Australian exploration. And I am not talking about my very good friend, Dingo Dave, who is with me right now. <laughs> Hello, mate. Hey, mate. How you doing? Going all right. How are you? Mate, not complaining, not complaining. Back in Queensland, which is uh, good to be here at this time of year. Um, good stuff going on at the moment. But yeah, tonight is, or this, this episode, mate, that is Ripper. Yes, this John McDougall Stewart. Now, Stewart is a very, very, very famous name in Australian exploration. He is a dude that did so much. And what I really love about Stewart's story is it's not that hard to get out there and Check out some of the places where he went. That's it. You know, we, you and I together would have crossed, you know, how many times have we have crossed Stuart's path in the last four or five years, mate? Yeah, there's so many <laughs> a lot. epic locations. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> yeah, dozens, dozens, literally dozens of times we would have crossed over where he and his various uh, expeditions had been or, or found, you know, in many cases, first people to be there. Uh, yeah, that's right. Stuff. And later on in this, uh, in this episode, we're going to have our very good friend Ben Castler from Adrenaline Off-Road. Join us. Uh, ben does tag along tours. He's got a great little store in Sydney Southwest in the Relin TJM store, where he also does um, a bunch of other stuff there as well. And he's going to talk to us about some of the places that you can go to experience Stewart's country. And there's some great spots to choose from there. I can't wait to see what he's come up with. Yeah, looking forward to catching up with Ben. We uh, went camping together. Oh, at the end of the year, I think two years ago, we pretty much got blown off the campsite. This crazy storm and when the storm came through, which uh, caused an early pack up. But uh, yeah, good to catch up with you. Yeah, well, Ben and I have actually uh, got together to do some some tag along touring stuff. So I don't have to tell you too much about it. You already know. But uh, Dingo and I obviously are hosting some pretty cool tag along tours and Ben also does a bit of tag along tour stuff so we decided to get together and, and do a few things together as well. So I'm hosting some of Ben's tours and Ben will get involved in some of our tours and I think he brings a lot to the table that the dude's got a wealth of knowledge and experience from touring the country and it's going to be really good to see what sort of stuff we can come up with together. It's going to be a heap of fun. Yeah, yeah, Ben and I were working on a, uh, a big project, a big sort of industry project, which obviously has been put on hold now with all of the dramas, but uh, looking forward to that one um, kicking back off again too. Yeah, fingers crossed it won't be too far away. All right, mate, well, John McDougall-Stewart, he was born in 1815 in Dysart in Scotland. Now, his old man, William, he was an army captain. So I always find it interesting to see what their parents did. So an army captain this time. He wasn't a royal inspector of Peter or anything funny like that. Just a regular old army bloke. Now, his mum was Mary McDougall, hence McDougall-Stewart. I find it very strange that the two surnames aren't hyphenated. Yeah, I, I always sort of wondered at the origin of that. And then in the research, it's like, well, wow, okay, that's where it came from. That's... Um Certainly non-traditional. Yeah. Now, he got his education at the Scottish Naval and Military Academy in Edinburgh in Scotland. He eventually graduated as a civil engineer. Uh, sadly, his parents did not live to see him graduate. I don't know why they died. I couldn't find out any information there, but he was in his early teens when they passed. 
Another student of note from that school was a bloke called Joseph Panton, who was an artist and an eventual Goldfields Commissioner in Victoria. Now, this was around the time of the Eureka Stockade, so that would have been a very tough gig. Stewart emigrated to South Australia aboard the Indus in 1838, and he arrived in January of 1839. He was only 23 when he arrived in Australia, and the South Australian colony at the time was only coming into its third year of existence as well, so it was a pretty rugged town. His education stood him in pretty good stead, and pretty soon he found himself working for the Surveyor General of South Australia. His boss, get this, was the one and only Captain Charles Sturt, the bloke who had solved the mystery of the inland flowing rivers of New South Wales. And if you missed our earlier podcast on Sturt, go and check it out. His, uh, his story's pretty epic too. Yeah, the, the, the thing that jumps out with Stuart, of course, is just how many times he crosses over the histories, the stories of, of the other great explorers. You know, he's kind of, he's kind of the, the sort of the missing link between a whole lot, or not missing at all really, but no. kind of the link between a whole lot of different activities which were happening all around Australia at the time. And and this guy seems to either be crossing paths with or competing against or working with so many of those other famous names. Yeah, that's right. I, it's just bizarre that he ends up with Sturt, isn't it? Yeah, it's just incredible. Like that. It's just that, that sort of Sturt, Stuart sort of mixed up anyway. And then Yeah, that's, that's why people get it mixed up all the time. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, just, they just, were actually travelled together. Yeah, and one little vowel. There you go. Stuart ended up leaving the Surveyor General's gig in 1842 to take up uh, a job with or in the Mount Lofty Ranges as a private surveyor. So he was working for himself, and he was also a part-time grazier for a while there. A couple of years later, in 1844, the aforementioned Captain Sturt was gearing up for an expedition into the interior, and he thought enough of Stuart's skill to ask him to join the trek as the expedition's draftsman. In other words, he was the bloke who did all the techie drawings and map drawing and that sort of stuff. This particular mission, as we discussed in the Sturt podcast, Made it further north than any other exploration before it, but it was a proper tough job. They found no inland sea, which is what they were hoping to do, and they reached what we now know as Sturt's Stony Desert, and of course a little bit further to the north, the mighty Simo, the Simpson Desert. The second in command, a poor old bloke named James Poole, he died of scurvy, and that prompted Stuart, uh, Sturt to give the second in command role to Stuart. I'm mixing them up already. Like the others, Stuart suffered pretty badly from scurvy, and so much so that he was actually unable to work or travel for around about a year after that expedition. You know, how often do we see scurvy as being the reason that things turned around? You know, here we are in an age of six different types of multivitamins sitting on every shelf <laughs> in the supermarket, which were just. <laughs> Makes it a non-event, you know, and yet for so many, so much investment, so many people's lives, so many, so many missions ended due to lack of just that basic, basic nutritional supplement. Yeah, well, scurvy was pretty, pretty common disease suffered by explorers and people that travelled long distances and were, you know, away for periods of time. Now. As we know now, it comes about due to a lack of vitamin C, and, and they actually knew that then as well. And it normally takes about a month without vitamin C before the symptoms start to occur. So first up, you'll feel weak, and your joints and your limbs, they'll just ache relentlessly. Next up, you'll start getting bleeding gums, your hair will start to change and maybe fall out, and eventually you may even lose your sight. Your wounds, your little scratches and things, they won't heal, and death from infection or bleeding will eventually finish you off. So it's a terribly slow and painful way to die. And despite it being common knowledge by that time, for about 90 years, that citrus fruit presented, prevented scurvy, it still killed many, many men. So it was in the 1750s that they figured out that, um, you know, lemon and lime juice and those sort of things would, would really impact scurvy. It would, would stop you getting it, essentially. 
but despite that, you know, yeah, 90 that, years later, yeah. they still weren't doing enough to stop it. No, incredible. Like, there, there weren't many orange orchards along the way, so it wasn't sort of, it wasn't the sort of thing they could um, tend to pick up along the way. It had to be something that was planned for at the start. Yeah. And yet, you know, it, it is just a common thread of, you know, how often in the last uh, last couple of months doing this podcast has scurvy come up as a topic? It, it really is something that we look upon now and go, really, how easy would that have been to solve? But clearly, no, clearly it wasn't. Well, it's funny because they always mention lemon and lime, but they never mention things that we know for being common, you know, vitamin mm. C sort of things like oranges and and some other fruit and avocados and stuff like that are really high in vitamin C. But, yeah, it always just seemed to be lemon and lime. No wonder they didn't want to take it. <laughs> so eventually, you know, he recovered uh, and he returned to work as a surveyor, working for himself, spending more and more time in remote regions. He obviously got a bit of a taste for it. He ended up living in both Port Lincoln and then further north in the Flinders Ranges, and he even operated an estate agency for a while, so he was selling properties. By all accounts, he was not a real people person, although he was a really well-noted leader of men, and he enjoyed the solitude and his own company, which is fair enough. I get that. Yeah, I do too. In May of 1958, Stuart once again had the urge to go exploring, and with some financial backing from a bloke called William Fink, you'll recognise the name Fink, you know, you've got the Fink Desert Race, the Fink River... Fink Gorge, mm-hmm. all those areas. Mm-hmm. Stuart headed off with an assistant and an Aboriginal tracker and enough tucker for about a month. And they wanted to go and check out what lay beyond Lake Torrens and Lake Gardner. Now, I'm pretty sure it was Edward John Eyre who'd checked these out before and he actually thought they all joined up and sort of formed this great big natural barrier. So no one had really checked out beyond there. So he was hoping to find some grazing lands past those two massive big salt lakes. Now, the boys made it as far north as Coober before turning south and then west to wind up at the station of a bloke named T.M. Gibson in Streaky Bay in South Oz. Now, the Aboriginal tracker by this time, he'd done a runner. The horses were pretty much lame and the men were absolutely shagged, as you can imagine. They only rested up for about uh, a week or so before returning to Adelaide as quite the success. On this journey alone, he discovered over 100,000 square kilometres of potential grazing land at really minimal cost and... Most importantly, no loss of life. He handed over his diary and his maps that he'd drawn, and he was rewarded with a massive land grant in the newly discovered region of 2,500 square kilometres. Not bad, eh? That's a massive amount of land, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Here you go, mate. Thanks for that. Here's 2,500 square k's. What would that yeah, be I'll worth today? In the desert. <laughs> <laughs> I'd still take it. Um, I'd still take it, absolutely. There's, there's, yeah, I mean, it's not all desert, is it? That part of that area he was in has actually turned into. You know, there's, there's plenty of people living in, in that sort of area. There's plenty of tourism activity in that area. So Absolutely. It's certainly far, it's far from just bare and arid. Okay, what about 2,500 square kilometres at Cooper Pedy? Well, yes. You couldn't well, put a price on that. No way. All the opals. Well, as long as you also get the first 10 metres going down too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so his second expedition was the following year in 1859. It was once again financed by Fink, but also another bloke this time by the name of Chambers. This time, Stuart left with four other blokes. They found an 800-kilometre route north that followed permanent water. Now, this is a massively big deal. They didn't do too much else on this journey, but that was huge. So this would set the scene for further expeditions because water, of course, is the lifeblood of any exploration journey. Did you see what he named that spring, Rico? Oh, he named quite a few. So was this Chambers Creek? Well, this this particular one he named the Spring of Hope. The Spring of Hope. Spring of Hope. And in his words, I can go from here to Adelaide any time of the year and in any sort of season. So that was an incredibly significant find. 
Yeah, it was huge. Absolutely massive. So the third expedition, so the, the second one was pretty short, but the third one, he and his team wanted to explore a little bit further north again. Now, in the they got as far as the Devonport Range, and they found signs of gold there. So the boys spent the next three weeks prospecting, and they had no luck, as you can imagine. His men rebelled, and the team returned to Chambers Creek. So for their bad behaviour, they were all sacked, with the exception of William Keckwick, who ended up remaining loyal, and he stayed with Stuart for the remainder of his career. He went on all of the journeys. So he was obviously a good bloke, but I bet you'd never heard his name before. I like Burke and Wills or Hugh McCovell. Keckwick. Yep. Doesn't roll off the tongue so good, does it? Stuart no, we Keckwick. don't get the, the yeah, that's it. it's not, not really a Batman and Robin kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> not a Batman and Robin thing at all. <laughs> so not long after this, they set off yet again. So this is, what, the fourth expedition now. Uh, in March of 1860... With just two men and 13 horses. So sadly for them, they'd, they'd lost a good chunk of their tucker after it was destroyed by floods up on the Udnadatta track. And by the, the time they made it to a freshwater creek that Stuart ended up naming the Fink, there you go, there's uh, the first thing he named after old yeah. They were suffering yeah. pretty badly from scurvy by this stage as well. And it was so rough that Stuart temporarily lost the sight in one eye. That must be just a horrible thing to have happen out in the middle of nowhere. Can't imagine. <laughs> not not a good way to spend the day. They continued on and followed the Fink and they arrived at the magnificent range of mountains that Stuart named for the current governor at the time, Sir Richard McDonnell. So obviously we're talking about the McDonnell Ranges. Anyone who's been into Alice Springs will uh, will recognise that. Magnificent part of the world. It is such a gorgeous mm. place. He continued on and near what he calculated to be the centre of the continent, he planted a flag on a small rise to let the natives know that the new boys were in town. Geographers now note that this was not the centre of the continent, and although Stuart named the spot Central Mount Sturt after his old mate Captain Sturt, it's now known as Central Mount Stuart, of course after Stuart himself. How far is it, Rico? Did you see how far that was from, you know, Lambert's, where we do now recognise the centre? No, I didn't actually. I, I, I no, really, I... really do want to go and see Central Mount Stuart now. <laughs> Agreed. So do I. Like it's it's one of those. You know, you, you knew that he named the centre, but it's only in sort of researching this in the last couple of weeks. It's like, well, I wonder how close he got. And I, you know, maybe I just didn't look in the right places. But I couldn't actually see sort of that that direct comparison. So I have to. I, uh, I think I remember reading my, something that said around a couple hundred k's. That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, if if that's the case, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, you know, navigating by the stars with one eye, and you managed to get. Within, you know, within a couple hundred k. Uh, if he stuff. had two good eyes, he probably would have nailed it. He would have nailed it. <laughs> well, I reckon that he was just an, an incredible navigator and cartographer. His, his drawings were never wrong. Mm. So that's pretty amazing, really. So over the, the following four weeks, the party of three men continued to attempt to travel north by northwest, but it wasn't until the rains came in May that they were actually able to make it another 320 k's north to Tennant Creek. And they made a bit of a depot there. Now, from Tennant Creek to the north coast is around about 800 k, so they'd, they'd made it a fair way. Now, they continued to try and find a way north, but a lack of water. So they'd scout ahead and they'd look for some water so they could move the whole party ahead and then another scout would go ahead again. And that's how they'd, they'd progress on. But they weren't finding any water within, you know, one or two days of where they were. And the thick scrub was also giving them plenty of grief. But also giving them grief were the Warramunga people. Unlike a lot of the Aboriginal people they'd encountered earlier, further to the south, these blokes were not so friendly. And on June 26, they actually raided the explorers' camp. They threw boomerangs at the horses and they set fire to the grass around the camp, which would be pretty scary in itself. 
Now, this was the final straw for this particular journey, and the team reluctantly headed home. This area came to be known as Attack Creek. Pretty amazing area around Attack Creek. I get to go in there every couple of years for work um, into a, into a, a site nearby. It just it, it just is like it seems like it wouldn't be. There's no great mountains. There's no rocky desert. But it would be the kind of terrain that would just absolutely step it out of here. You know, trying to take, trying to walk in a straight line would just be so hard. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you would be constantly course correcting. You'd be constantly, you know, there's not a great deal of direction you can get from the sun until, you know, until it's nearly setting. So you pretty much at night would have to then be double checking yourself and, and realizing just how far off track you've been. So it just would have been such a rugged terrain to walk through. Oh, look, this whole exploration gig is tough, isn't it? None of it's easy. There's, yeah, rocks in there, there, there's <laughs> no glamour involved in it whatsoever. No, no, and you don't even get to tell anyone that you did it if, if you don't make it back. That's <laughs> right. It's, it's an up and back trip. All right, so they, they decided at Attack Creek they'd had enough. Now they turned around. They had over 2,400 k's ahead of them. They had scurvy. Their supplies were short, and the horses were not in great condition either. Now, they headed on regardless, and despite all of this, as Stuart typically does on most of his trips, he made pretty good time. When they finally arrived at the relative safety of Chambers Creek, it was only a few days after the massive Burke and Wills extravaganza had finally left Melbourne to try their hand at being the first across the continent. Now, by this point, it had pretty much turned into a bit of a race to see who'd be the first. In October 1860, Stuart and his team finally made it back to Adelaide. Although he hadn't quite made it all the way across, he had found what he said was the centre of the continent, and that was massive, absolutely massive. Sturt hadn't been able to do it. He'd, he'd tried several times, but his protege, old mate Stuart, he did. So for this, he was, a, he, got he was awarded the Royal Geographical Society's Patrons Medal and a gold watch. Incidentally, the only other person to be presented with both the medal and the watch was the infamous Dr Livingstone. Really? Do- Dr Livingstone, I presume, that bloke. Absolutely, the other man with the watch. So uh, he was another Scotsman, and he'd famously famously discovered the headwaters of the Nile in Africa, and and he was gone for a very long time. That's that's where that little famous Dr. Livingston, I presume, line comes from when someone finally ran into him. So there you go. They're the only two blokes to have, uh, at that point, scored the Patron's Medal and the Gold Watch. Yeah, I'd like a Gold Watch. That'd be nice. <laughs> Not that I really wear watches. So for Stuart's fifth expedition... His long-time financial backer, Chambers, suggested that Stuart and Keckwick head north again, but this time with a government-provided and government-funded armed guard to help the boys make it past Attack Creek. The government eventually agreed, and they actually provided 10 armed men. Now, this put the cost of the expedition at around £2,500. Now, to put this into perspective, the Burke and Wills expedition was up around nine and a half to ten thousand pounds when they left. And as they went on they actually incurred, you know, probably double that again. So they're doing it on the cheap, really, even though the government sort of kicked the can a bit. So on the first of again, January just, Yeah. Just how streamlined these trips were, you know, even even with the extra men there as basically an armed gun, it was still a really streamlined you know, cut to the bone. Everyone who was on the trip had a reason to be there. Yeah, yeah. just love the way he put his trips together. Yeah, Stuart was famous for that. He was he was really, uh, I wouldn't say frugal, but yeah, he didn't take anything he didn't need to, and it made travelling vast distances a lot easier than, than obviously the Burke and Wills boys found it when they first kicked off, that's for sure. So on the 1st of January 1861, Stuart left Chambers Creek with a dozen men. This time he had 49 horses 
and rations for around about 30 weeks. By the 11th of February, the team was still in northern South Australia, but Burke and Wells were by now in the Gulf of Carpentaria. So the race was well and truly on, and it was not looking good for old mate Stuart. They reached Attack Creek on the 24th of April, 1861, and right about that time, Burke and Wells were barely able to walk into their base camp at Cooper Creek after having crossed the continent only to find it abandoned. Charlie Gray of the Burke and Wills party was dead and Burke and Wills themselves only had days to live. They had, yep, they'd done it, they crossed the continent, but they also paid the ultimate price. The difference between the Burke and Wills party and Stuart's could not be more polar opposite, really, when you sit down and take a look at things. It just was staggering that how different it was when you consider whether they were trying to set out to achieve the same thing. I'm so looking forward to the time we're going to spend looking into, you know, all of these guys in more detail, particularly Burke and Wills. You know, what we, I guess, what we what we perceive about Burke and Wills and what the actual reality was to, um, you know, to starkly different things. And then when you contrast them to the other exploration efforts, you know, yeah. including Lansbury, including the others that were sort of the search party, um, just such a different way of going about things. And yeah, that's right. You know, the reality was, but the reality was they still succeeded. They just didn't. Didn't make a book of life. They, they, they achieved <laughs> their goal of discovery, but um, didn't get to tell anyone. Yeah, so. well, look, when we tell oh, the Burke and Wills story, it'll become obvious why. But in, in case you're wondering, right. like with this podcast, you know, we're focusing on these exploration expeditions, and we haven't done arguably the most famous expedition of all time, the Burke and Wills one. And there's a reason for that, is because our first season of the show that we're going to put on YouTube is actually on Burke and Wills. So we're going to make you wait for that to find out the whole Burke and Wills story, which we'll tell in detail across 10 episodes. There will be no stone left unturned. No, that's right. That's right. There'll be no track left unwalked by Dingo. He'll walk the whole way. <laughs> Camels and all. In period. In period costume. <laughs> that's right. I'll see you now. Cabbage leaf hat. <laughs> all right. So meanwhile... Stuart battled on and continued north, and he made it as far as a place he named Newcastle Waters, which is just south of the present-day Daly Waters. After several failed attempts to go on and more trouble with the locals, they turned around and started to head home again. When Stuart arrived home, he'd heard that Burke and Wills were missing, and he immediately offered to go and join the search for them. That's the sort of bloke he was. Despite the fact that he had led five journeys into the region, he'd never lost a man, the South Australian government were reluctant to fund such a mission. Their focus was on establishing a route for the new Overland Telegraph, which is uh, sort of why Burke and Wills were doing it as well, because someone someone from the private sector had put up a fair chunk of money for the first person that could create a practicable route for this Overland Telegraph. So there was a, there was a fair bit of coin on offer. It's probably worth somewhere in the region of a quarter of a million dollars today. So, yeah, definitely worth getting out there and having a squiz, I thought. And the massive, I guess, state pride of having it uh, either come into Adelaide or come into Melbourne or... You well, know, at this point, like we're talking was. the 1860s and the way that everybody got their news from, from back home, as they still called it then, from England, was via ships. And it was important to get this news as quickly as possible. Now, the ships would take three to four months to come across. And in, in the news that they carried, there'd be things like the prices of grains and iron ore and, and other bits and pieces that really would have an impact on colonial life and, and things that they would send back to, to Mother England and things that they would buy from England. It was all really important. Now, by getting the telegraph, you're getting the news first, which makes you very, very important. Now, Adelaide had been getting the news first by ship uh, ever since it came into existence a few years previously, and it was the one thing that made Adelaide worthwhile. 
So when the race was on to get this Overland Telegraph that was going to come from Darwin, well, they wanted to make sure they got that as well so that they could be the centre of the country when it came to putting the news out there. So, yeah, they were pretty invested in making sure that it was them. So it was with this goal in mind that the government did finally decide to fund a six expedition with Stuart again at the helm. And once again, the lion's share of the funding, however, was provided by Fink and his mate Chambers. They left Chambers home on October 23rd, 1861, and it didn't take long for disaster to strike, though. Just south of Gawler, one of the horses reared, and it smacked Stuart in the head and knocked him out cold. The horse then trampled his right hand, dislocating fingers, and tore the flesh and the nail from another finger. It was so bad they thought they might have to amputate. After some very basic medical attention, Stuart caught up with the party five weeks later. They'd sort of continued on slowly and then waited for him at one of the last stations out that way. Once he caught up, the party continued on and they made really good time to Newcastle waters, reaching it in just four months. When you think about their walking and on horses, it's, that's pretty spectacular. <laughs> that's a whole lot of country, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's a whole lot of rugged, rugged, hot inhospitable yep. country too. This time they made it further north. First they made it to Daly Waters and then on to the Mary River. Now the Mary River had already been mapped. I think it was by Gregory, Augustus Gregory. On July 24, 1862, Mankey Hand and all, Stuart made it to the beach at Chambers Bay, just east of present-day Darwin. He'd done it. He had crossed the continent from north to south. How good was that? And that was after six, <laughs> well I guess Three concerted pushes north. Um, yeah, just to see how impressive it was that their first their first trip to Newcastle waters enabled them then the second time around to just get there so much quicker. You know, so that's that real. You know, we talk about opening up the country. It's exactly what they did. They didn't when they came through the second time. They didn't have to base camp and explore for a couple of days and come back and move on. They could actually walk with purpose. You know, they knew where the waterholes were. They knew, you know, that they knew that there was reliable capacity to actually keep on moving. So that's what opening up the country was all about, and uh, they proved it themselves. Yeah, exactly right. Now, Stuart himself, he was a small man. There wasn't much of him. He was around five foot six, and he was about fifty odd kilos. But he was determined. He was fiercely determined. He he didn't really care too much about how much he suffered. He just had to achieve what he set out to achieve. He'd endured six horrendous expeditions into the most inhospitable land on the planet. He'd suffered numerous bouts of scurvy. He'd suffered malnutrition. He ended up with a disease called trachoma, which is a horrible eye condition that leaves the insides of your eyelids rough like sandpaper. Every single blink hurt. He was in such poor condition on the return journey and virtually blind from sun sightings, glare and scurvy. He spent most of his time on a gurney between two horses and he never really did recover his health. When he got back, he sorted out his diaries and his maps for publication, as they always do, and he left Australia on the 23rd of April, 1864, for Britain. He died just two years later in London, and he was only 50 years old. I think that's horrendously sad. Yeah, 50 years old, but what a 50 years. You know, here we are, 130 years later, and, and so, so many Australians who really aren't into the exploring thing, or well more than 130 years. Um, still know his name, and they, and they, they do recognise, without the detail, they do recognise what amazing things he must have achieved. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I actually I, I actually found the, and I, I can't find it now, I found the um, the name of the condition which finally took his life, and it was basically a softening of the brain is how the, it, uh, how the it's actually um, 
translated back into English from French. Oh, it's, it's so, like you at camp after a couple of sherbets. <laughs> a softening of the brain. It never happened. It never happened. <laughs> oh, mate, I'll put it on Facebook one day, then it'll be real. Yeah, I can do that too. Yeah. <laughs> now, look, like, like a lot of explorers, um, Stuart often named many places after his backers and his mates and, and important people of the day, and he rarely named places after himself, unlike some others out there. I'm looking at you, Sir Thomas Mitchell. But anyway, places <laughs> that have been named after him include the Stuart Highway, of course, one of my favourite roads. Uh, sections mm-hmm. of that road have no speed limit, and, and lots of it's 130 k's an hour, so that's a top place to spend some time. Stuart Street, which is a main road near ACT. McDool Peak in South Australia, Stewart Park in Darwin. Of course, there's Central Mount Stewart, which was initially Central Mount Sturt. Stewart Creek in far north South Australia. Stewart High School in Wyala. Like all of these guys that we've spoken about so far, the electoral divisions. There are actually two named after Stewart, one in the Northern Territory and one in South Australia, so he's doing pretty well there. Most of them only get one. The Stewart Range. You might not recognise that one because it's now known as Coober And the town of Stewart. Uh, again, another one you won't recognise because its name was changed to Alice Springs in 1933. So yeah. there you go. I think they so, should change it back. Well, he did get to name everything around it, didn't he? <laughs> 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 you, you can't you can't be in there and not uh, not acknowledge the mountains um, on either side. But, yes, uh, the McDonald yeah, Ranges. So, yeah, the, the places he named. Wow, there was plenty of those too, wasn't there? You got Chambers Pillar, Chambers Gorge. Mm. What was the other one? Chambers Beach, where he ended up landing up north. And, and finally, have you been to Chambers Pillar, Rico? I haven't been to Chambers Pillar, mate. No, no, we nearly got there two years ago, didn't we? But we didn't get the um, we didn't get the photography permit through in the yeah, end. I, I don't mind because it's just another reason to go back. Oh, totally! It's on the unfinished business list. You know, yep. just like just like seeing the rest of the Fink Gorge, we only got to see that that one section of it or those couple of pieces of it. So, oh, don't worry, mate. I've got to tag know, along to a plan that's going to take us. Uh, I'm calling it Journey to the Centre of Australia, and we'll be seeing not- Chambers Pillar. We'll be seeing. Palm Valley and all of the Fink Gorge and all of those other great spots as well. Lambert Centre, so nice. You visit it twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Stanley Chasm, all those great spots. Yeah, so we could spend three weeks out there. It's oh, fantastic. Easily, and we will. Why not? Mm. So monuments to Stuart. You, you can find one in Victoria Square in Adelaide, not surprising. There's also one in Darwin. There's a huge stone structure depicting where Stuart crossed just east of Maree. Uh, I've been past that one a few times. I've got some great photos of that. And there's also a four-metre-high statue of Stuart in the Heritage Precinct of Alice Springs. So there you go. That is pretty much everything that Stuart did. Well, not everything, but that is the very, very compact version because he did so much. He did. There's just so, so much there. So this is going to be another one that's going to be fantastic to unpack when we're out in the bush in a couple of years. Yeah, Um, absolutely. There's so much detail. Now, what do you know about Alexander Tolmer? Absolutely nothing. This is the thing. So this, the, I'm, I'm exactly the same. So Palmer was the, the first person to be given the grant, if you like, or the, the dollars from the um, South Australian government to go and sort of do that in close exploration, looking for pastoral land and various other things. Um, and the only description I could find of him was that he failed miserably, failing to travel beyond the settled districts. Well, there you so go. I, I feel like I need to find out a bit more about how this dude did manage to get the money at the time over uh, over Stuart, um, which obviously then didn't work out in the end. But yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of research that I'm going to put some time into. There you and, go. And just, what was Alexander Tomer? 
There was no shortage of blokes sticking their hand up to have a crack at it, but very, very few had, you know, the intestinal fortitude to actually follow through and put up with what you had to put up with once you're out there. I did find a photo of him. I think his outstanding sideburns may have been part of the uh, <laughs> it slowed him down. The reason he's a successful failure. Oh, uh, uh, they probably had their own yeah, ecosystem in them or something. Oh, I think that an outstanding set of sideburns. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to have Ben Castler from Adrenaline Offroad Tours join us, and he's going to show us uh, some of the places or tell us about some of the places where you can go in your own four wheel drive to experience Stuart's country. We'll be right back. How was your day, sweetie? Terrible. A deal that I've been working on for weeks fell apart and... Yep. (sighs) Sounds like the time the gearbox went in my patrol. How is that the same, Terry? If you really love cars, Auto One. Now, as the owner of a patrol, I hope the gearbox does not go in my patrol. And if it does, I know exactly where to take it. I'll be taking it to the Adrenaline Off-Road Centre in Sydney Southwest, which is where my very good friend Ben Castler runs his business. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Yeah, very good, thanks, Rick. How are you? Oh, mate, loving life, loving life. Now, Dingo and I have been waffling on for the last half an hour or so about everything that uh, John McDougall-Stewart managed to pack into his short 50 years, and including a lot of discovering uh, some fantastic country here in Australia. Mate, we wanted to talk to you because I know that you've spent a lot of time in Central Australia doing your own trips and exploring and, and you run these great tag along tours if you were going to sell someone to go and find three spots to experience the best of Stewart's country where would you send them i'd say uh, probably start at parachilna gorge so it's in the flinders ranges near blinman Stuart uh, commenced some of his expeditions from chambers creek which is now called Stuart creek and he would have passed through that country starting off those expeditions it's amazing the scenery you got there it sort of looks like a painting as you're driving through it all it's yeah awesome stuff uh, another one would be Fink River Gorge and the Fink River. Oh, yeah. So on, yeah, it's nice through there. So on Stuart's uh, fourth expedition, he uh, came across that river, from what my research tells me. He would have passed through some places in the Fink River Gorge, such as uh, Boggy Hole and Palm Valley. So they're nice spots that I've been to, which are definitely worth a visit if you're sort of in that Ma- part of Australia. Have you been to Boggy Hole? been to Boggy Hole a different day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I, you're not a fan of it, eh? I, I did not find it to be particularly idyllic, no. Oh, wow. Well. No, Rick, Rico and I did have a big mission one day to get into Boggy Hole, and, <laughs> and uh, yeah. it, it did strike us as being a little bit disappointing. But, um, yeah, but we had a mission to get in there. The, the trip was fun, but um, we did find... Was that where we found that police station, remnants of the police station? Yeah, not too far from there, yeah. Yeah, it was on that trip, wasn't it? Yeah. It's on the way in, yeah. Uh, some cracking spots through that gorge. It's just that that serious God country out there. That's it. And I guess the last place would be the West McDonald Rangers. So in his travels heading sort of northwest, he would have headed through a lot of the sort of gorges in that area. You've got Red Bank Gorge and a number of those spots along that sort of section of the West McDonalds, which is well worth a visit. Yeah, there's there's plenty of spots through there that are well worth a visit. We've been to uh, Stanley Chasm. Actually done that one a couple of times. That was great. There's some fantastic ochre beds out there that are worth exploring as well. If you've never seen a really rich bed of ochre and then, you know, a great big, you know, four or five metre wall of it going straight up, it's a sight to see. It really is something else. And what else did we discover down that way? What was the name of that pub? Well, that was on the, oh, um, the Glen Helen. The Glen, Glen Helen, Helen Resort, yeah. Glen Helen Gorge, yeah. That was yep. amazing. I remember the, 
Remember when the sunset just bouncing off that gorge back towards the campsite? Yeah, magnificent. Um, absolutely stunning location. And and you can pick another six gorges along that same what is it? That's not Namajira Drive, isn't it? That, it is Namajira Drive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Amazing part of the country. So diverse. You know, you could, so many tourists just sort of, well, you know, you know we were tourists too, I suppose. Um, they head out of Alice on their way to Uluru and just laugh past all of this stuff where they could literally spend a week getting to Uluru and not see the same thing twice. Yeah, that's right. The um, Marini Loop's a great way to do it. Place. Fantastic. Mate, you got any other uh, big trips planned this year, Ben, now that things are starting to get back to normal a little bit? Oh, as things are starting to open up, we're sort of trying to head out and about. We, uh, we're doing a bit of a, a recce trip out to central western sort of New South Wales, hopefully in the next few days. Yep. We'll uh, check out some spots there for some future outings. But uh, yeah, as the borders open up, we're going to continue to reopen the tours that we're sort of starting to plan for this year. Yeah, awesome. Well, I, I know I've got a couple planned as well. I've got one going up sort of kind in that area. We're going from Coffs Harbour out to... Uh, James Blundell's farm, which is just over the border there in Queensland. We've got an Outback New South Wales tour that we're going to do. We're basically going to go from corner to corner, so down right near the bottom left-hand corner of New South Wales up to the the top left-hand corner there at Cameron Corner. So some fantastic country, a lot of Sturts country through there. That'll be great. And I was hoping to do one that we touched on earlier, Dingo, the journey to the centre of Australia where we take in all of those places that you just spoke about. That'd be a great one. Yeah, let's just hope we, we have enough time. <laughs> the year's getting away from yeah, us now. You can only fit so many trips in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I suppose there's always next year. now the trouble, isn't it? It's yeah. that time crunch we get now. But uh, that's it. All these places have been there for 40 years, for, for many, many millions of years. They'll, um, they'll still be there next year. So oh, let's hope so. It would be great to get out of there. Well, I'd like to get up there before they start paving all of those roads. I, I heard recently that a good chunk of the Plenty Highway is going to be paved. Oh, really? Yeah, from from Tobermory Station through to uh, around Gemtree, I think, or maybe a bit further. Wow, okay. So that'll certainly change things out there. It will, but, you know, you can understand that I I did read a report the other day on, um, stumbled across it, on um, the extra cost at the moment because those roads are in such bad condition, what it's costing per kilometre to transport cattle. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, we might. We might only cross those roads once every two or three years, but people who live out there, well, you know, that's that's their home. So if it uh, if it takes sealed roads to help them um, bring their cattle to market without uh, injury and illness, then maybe that's just what we have to do. Well, my take on it is it's very much like the Cape. You know, everyone's hammering on about the Peninsula Development Road being paved. I don't think anyone goes up the Cape to drive the PDR. I think they go up the Cape yeah, to do the exactly telegraph right. track and you know, all the other fantastic places that are available up there. And this is this country's sort of the same, really, where we're talking about. No one really goes up there to drive the plenty. You go up there and do the binge track and get across the Mount there from, from Gemtree and those sort of areas. But if you're only going out there to drive the plenty, I suggest you might want to have a look at your itinerary. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, if, if, if the plenty or the PDR is your idea of the ultimate adventure, then you just need to stay in the Kmart car park. That's, <laughs> that's sort of where we're at. You know, oh, we're the so judgmental, aren't we? Terrible humans. Well, we are, mate. We are. But, you know, the adventure isn't on those main roads. Those main roads are there for the people who live there. You know, the adventure is found off to the side. And, you know, if if you're not prepared to have a bit of a look around for it, then, you know, maybe do a bit more research or maybe don't go. Yeah, or maybe jump on a a tag-along tour with Ben or myself. That'd be great. There you go. And, you know, I've done plenty of tag-alongs too, both as a participant back when I was starting out and obviously now that I'm in this position I'm in now. But the only way in many ways to find 
the hidden gems is to go with someone who knows rather than just you can't just trust Facebook to tell you everything, you know, and <laughs> you know, the people who tell you this, that, and the other, you don't have permission to be there, you know, you shouldn't be in certain locations, whereas, you know, reputable tagline tour operators, they have the permissions, they've got the contacts, you know, you're actually going to see more um, when you're travelling with someone who, who should be there and who knows where they're going. Yeah, well That's said. Right. And, and when you're sort of limited on time, everyone's only got a limited amount of time they can take off each year. It's best to sort of hit the, the spots rather than spend your time searching for those spots. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, and absolutely. You, you're sort of benefiting from their years of knowledge as well. They've done all the hard work. We've done all the hard work to find these great spots and find the special places. So when you're out there with that limited time, as you say, you're not wasting it on, you know, just another dirt road. Exactly. And, you know, I've, I've been on tours where, you know, there's been maybe the, the focus on a certain day wasn't where I wanted to be, but it just joined. It just became another part of my unfinished business list. And, you know, then I went back 10 years later without a tour or on, on my way to somewhere else. So you're never going to see everything all at once. But to, to maximise your time out there, having someone who knows where they're going is quite simply the best thing you can do in your planning. Yeah, totally agree. Sure. All right, well, on that note, if people would like to find out more about the tours that, Ben, that you're running, mate, with Adrenaline Off-Road Tours, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, so they can look at our website, adrenalineoffroadcentre.com.au, or they can hit us up on our Facebook page and we list all our tours under the events section that we do both uh, on our own and in conjunction with you, Rick. That's right, and there are a couple of special ones up there at the moment. I've got my ugly head on them. That's it. You've leading a few for us at the moment. Yeah, it's good Palangelo fun. Palangelo and Hill End. Yeah, that's right. Looking forward to that. Actually, had a mate ring me up tonight telling me that uh, he's going to be on one of those Hill End tours. So I told him to make sure he prepares his cast iron stomach. Oh, all righty, Ben. Hill End one week. We got very close to Hill a couple of years ago, didn't we, Rick? And I'd, I'd, I've never explored there. So. Okay, no. Awesome. I've spent quite a bit of time around that area. I'm a, an absolute mm. sucker for a bit of gold, fossicking and prospecting. So, yeah, I was, I've dug up many a bullet and aluminium can out at Hill End. Yeah. <laughs> not, not much gold, though. <laughs> you know, about 100 years too late. Never mind, never mind. All right, Ben, we'll, we'll leave it there with you, mate. We really appreciate you being involved and getting on the podcast and, and sharing those epic spots with us. And I uh, look forward to seeing you out on the track soon, buddy. Thanks, guys. Cheers. All right, Dingo, we're going to wrap mate. things up here as well, mate. So if people want to find out more about what you're up to, Dingo, tell us about your Facebook page. Uh, I have a Facebook page at Dingo Dave, and I also have Instagram at Dingo Dave 4x4, and obviously most of what I do sits in the Australian Off-Road Academy, where, sad to say, I'm back to Fraser Island this weekend, mate. We're celebrating the opening of Kingfisher and Yurong Resort uh, again at, you know, at limited capacity, COVID safe and all the other things. But um, I'm going to spend the weekend on Fraser doing a bit of content over there, because why not? Well, I'm very glad that they're opening, and I'm very glad that they're welcoming guests. I'm not very glad that you're going, and I'm not. I'm not going to lie. I will send you many, many photos. (laughs) No doubt, no doubt. I think I'll turn off Facebook this weekend. All right, if you'd like to find out more about our Tag Along Tours, you can head across to our Facebook page, which is Australia Rediscovered with Rico. You'll find all of the Tag Alongs there in our events page. You can also head to my website, rico.com.au, and go to the Tag Along page there. You'll find out even more information, and that's where you need to go if you'd like to book yourself a spot on one of the tours that Dingo and I are hosting and some of the other tours that we're running in conjunction with Ben and Adrenaline Off-Road Tours. Uh, you can also check out my other Facebook page. I seem to have so many pages these days, which, of course, is just Rico, and you can go Facebook forward slash Rico4x4. You'll find me there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast on our mate Stuart, what a hero he was, 
and we look forward to coming back to you in another fortnight with a new one. Cheers, folks. Thank you.